morning, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some Bibles provided for you. Uh, They're at the the center of each aisle, uh, kind of on the floor up under the chairs. And if you don't have one, you can just maybe flag somebody down who's sitting on the edge and they can pass one to you. Uh, Take it with you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to have it. Love to talk to you about what you read there. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians because this is the next thing in our study of this letter. And, um, and we're going to be covering a lot of ground today. Uh, chapter 7 is one of the longest chapters. It's also one of the most difficult to divide up uh, because, of the, because of what's in it. And so what I've decided to do, just for the sake of the series on the whole and moving uh, efficiently through this, this letter, is to take the whole thing at once. And that's going to mean coming at it from a pretty high level. Uh, but I think that it'll pay off for us. Uh, we'll see how it goes. We're going to be in the whole chapter, verses 1 to 40. Um, I, I spoke recently, uh, a while back, with another pastor uh, who's got a lot more experience than I do. He actually has decades of ministry under his belt. Uh, almost all of that ministry in the southeast. We're talking about ministry challenges. He said something that really struck me. He said, he said that one of the main things he thinks he's had to deal with, and he thinks ministers in the southeast in particular, but in, in America generally, but especially in the Southeast, have to deal with is unhappy Christians. Unhappy Christians. Now, what he, what he meant by that was not folks who are sorrowful or suffering. That's normal. That's just living in a world that's broken. And Christianity doesn't promise you an end to your sorrow or to your suffering in this life. That's not what he's talking about. And he wasn't And he wasn't talking about the sort of biological components that come into our sorrow and our suffering and our unhappiness. He would acknowledge, and and I would acknowledge, that that we are are broken beings physically and mentally and emotionally and that that there can be a biological component to why we feel down. What he was talking about, what I took him to mean, and what really struck me was a sense of general unhappiness in life, a, a sense that you're not getting what you want out of life that you're not living the life you wish you were. Or maybe, maybe the best way to summarize it is, is, is Christians wishing their lives were different from what they were. That landed with me. I think one of the main reasons it landed with me because I realized he was talking about me all too often. Just this sense on my chest that I'm an unhappy Christian sometimes. And also because I just know it's true. I talk to friends and family and people in other churches and people I run into, and it's common. And it got me wondering why, why maybe this is a bigger problem for us than Christians at other times, maybe in other places in the world. Um, it could be that it's a sense of American or Western entitlement, maybe, that we have a, we have a strong sense that we deserve better. Maybe it's the sense that, maybe it's the, the fact that in, in our country and in the West in general, you can move your way up the ladder. So there's possibilities, there's opportunities, and the, and the possibility of having a life different from what you are can, can maybe put it into your mind that you should be having a life different from what you are. In a way that, you know, somebody born into feudal medieval England as a serf just didn't have the opportunity to become a small business owner that, you know, becomes a multimillionaire. Wouldn't, be, wouldn't spend too much time just obsessing over a different life than the one they were born into. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's that we're taught to be sensitive to our feelings and our needs and emphasize them in an unhealthy way. I don't know exactly. 
what it is. And, I, and I'm not going to try to answer that question this morning. Why do we have, why do we struggle as unhappy Christians in the way that we do? I don't want to talk about that this morning, probably because I don't know how to answer it. Probably because I don't want to make you feel guilty. Uh, you know, maybe you should feel guilty, but I'm not going to make you feel that way. Uh, that's not going to help you. Uh, what I want for myself and for you guys is freedom from that. Freedom from the sense, as a Christian, the Christian understanding of who God is and what God is doing in the world, that we, a, a, a captivation by the fact that we wish our lives were different from what they were. I want you freed from that. I want myself to be freed from that. And our passage this morning, I think, points us the way. How can you be free from restlessness and discontent? Now, on the surface of it, we're about to read this thing. We're going to read the whole thing. All right, we're going to read the whole 40 verses. And as we read, on the surface, you, are, you may not see this passage as a passage about contentment or how to find happiness despite your circumstances. Uh, because on the surface, it's about a bunch of things. Uh, it's, it's this section of the letter where Paul is responding to stuff that, they had, that had, this church that he's writing to had, had written him about. They sent him a letter. We don't know exactly what was in it. You know, we try our best to figure out what they said based on how he responds to them. We don't know exactly what they, were, what they were asking him about. They were asking him about something, and he writes this letter in response to sort of answer their questions. And so he jumps around a lot from subject to subject. Most of them are about marriage and singleness, but it's not the whole thing. And, and even within the marriage and singleness categories, there's lots of different narrow angles that he pursues, and too many to get at today, uh, too many to really get at one by one and anything less than like a couple months. And we don't want to spend that kind of time on it. What you're going to see is, for example, some curious details. Paul saying things like, I'm saying this, not the Lord. This is me saying this. I don't have a word from the Lord. What is that about? We'll say a little bit about that, but not much. There's another section where if you've got one, ver- one version of the Bible, it's going to say something, it's going to talk about whether a father should give up his virgin daughter to marriage or not, uh, based on the coming of Christ. And if you have another version, the one that I think is accurate, the one I'm going to be reading from, it's going to sound like whether or not a person who's engaged to a woman should go ahead and get married with her or not get married with her based on the coming of Christ. So there's curious things about how to translate them. There's, curious, there's just a curious thing, why is he talking about that in, in general? It's, in, our, in our culture, we're not really asking whether or not we should go ahead and get married to the person we're engaged to. And we're certainly not asking those questions in light of the coming of Jesus we're going, to talk, we're going to see a part about uh, sexuality. So, for example, last week, we talked at length about the role of sexuality as it's designed, why it's so important in the context of marriage. And with that backdrop, I'm not going to go into the opening instructions in this chapter. The first several verses are back to the sex talk, right? And uh, what I'm going to do, if, that's, if you want to know what those verses mean, what I'm going to do is say, listen to last week, as we go in depth, and I think they make these clear, and then if you're married, listen to last week, and if you're married... Go ahead and read the first few verses of chapter 7 together and, and apply those to your lives, all right? I'm going to leave you to do that on your own. I think they're pretty clear. I think you'll enjoy it. Continuing on through the chapter, there's a section on divorce and remarriage. Again, not going to go into that in depth, not because it's not important, but because I think his instructions here, for the most part, are very clear. What I want to do is something else. I want to try to pry into the thing that runs under all of his instructions uh, because the whole chapter is tied together by a vision of what it is to live in this life as if God is in control of this world that he's made and as if he is for you and as if he is for you no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. 
Because as Paul is making all of these, these, uh, these recommendations to them based on this or that place in life, he's doing it from the same big picture. And it has everything to do with contentment, with God's role in your life, his purposes for you, what he's given you. What, basically what he's saying, the way I want to summarize it, is that the good life is the life that God gives you as long as he gives you himself. The good life is the life that God gives you, whatever that might be, as long as he also gives you himself. Because the thing that, the, that his friends were hung up on, and the thing I think we're often hung up on, and that leads us to our unhappiness, is the sense that our lives could be better if we changed this in our lives. If we could just get rid of that, or if we could just get that, then our lives would be better. They were hung up on what they needed to get out of their lives, a sort of asceticism, a monasticism that, that said they were, they were being held back by, by physical things like sex, and we should just do away with it, and their lives would be better. We're probably more tempted to the other side. We think our lives would be better if we could get this new thing, you know, this thing that we don't have. Paul's saying to, either, to both of us, he's saying what you have or don't have is not the point. The point is that if God gives you himself, you have what you really need. So we're going to call ourselves together through this passage to faith and to contentment through the promises of God. Now, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to read the whole chapter. Like I said, it's going to take us a while, but because we're not going into it in depth, I think we need to read it together and get it all out there. This is the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Perhaps your version has quotations around that. Most people think that's him quoting something they said in their letter. And now he's going to respond to it. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you beyond because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether your husband, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. 
Was anyone at the time of his calls uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for the person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with this world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. That's a can of worms, huh? Uh, We are not going to try to unpack it all, like I said. What I want to do is drill down on the core of what Paul's writing about here. Most of the commentators point to the same thing. Underlying it all, what governs how he responds in one situation or another, is this conviction about God's purposes in the world and about a calling to remain as you are with God. That's what I want to unpack. I want to understand what he means by that and how we could could find happiness through it. I want to tease out through, especially looking at the... the, uh, People point to verses 17 to 24 as the the core of the passage, the thing that controls, the, the truth about God that controls how he's handling each individual case through the letter. I want to drill down there first. And then... And then look to verses 25 to 40, which are a kind of test case for it. The issue of, if you're single and you're not married yet, what should you do since Jesus is coming back? And, and taking, t- taking a close look at those sections, here's what I want to point you to. I think there are three things that we need to connect with 
if we're, to, if we're to enjoy a happiness that is not tied to our circumstances in life, we need to connect with God's acceptance of us, we need to connect with God's sovereignty over us, and we need to connect with God's future for us. God's acceptance of us, His sovereignty over us, His future for us. Now quickly, His acceptance of us comes through in verses 17 to 20. So here, and he's, gone, he's switching gears a little bit from, from, talking about, uh, from talking about issues of marriage, sexuality within marriage, divorce and remarriage. And he, and he brings in this issue of circumcision. Now, what he's, what he's doing here is not, it seems like a, like a real sharp turn from what he has been doing earlier in the chapter, but really they're pretty closely connected. What he's doing here is sort of raising another issue to make the same point he's already been making, that that ultimately what matters is God and his view of you, not what circumstances are in your life. So the key to, to growing spiritually is not changing something circumstantially in your life like they might have been thinking. It's not stopping uh, sexual relations with your wife or your husband. That's not going to make you more holy. What you need to lock in on is what God already says of you. And so circumcision becomes his, his, uh, his case study here in verse 17 to 20. Verse 17 starts out, let, the, let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. To which God has called him is a little deceiving there. The to which part is not in the original language. It's been added to make it more readable, but I think it's, it, it can deceive us a little bit. Because what it sounds like when I read that is, you should just stay where in the circumstances to which God has called you. And that is kind of what he's saying at the beginning of that verse, to lead the life the Lord has assigned you. I think it's basically saying, live the life that you've got. This is the one that God and his providence has given you. We're going to talk about that. But the to which he has called you has a different meaning, a different purpose, and it's the key to understanding what he's about to say. This is a, this is a word, this word calling is a word Paul never uses for like vocation, what you're doing with your life. That's the way we use it in the 21st century, but that wasn't the way the word was used then. Calling for Paul almost always meant the calling of God on your life that changes you from someone who is dead in sin to someone who has new life in Christ. Think about Ephesians chapter 2, another one of Paul's letters. He sets this up. He says, all of us dead in sin, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he's loved you, has made you alive together with Christ. That is, that is what Paul means by calling in his letters. It's that moment where God finds you in your sin and tells you you are not that person anymore, calls you out of it. So what he's saying here is that you're to live life in light of God's calling you where you were when he called you. So he's accepted you already. He has called you out as his own already. So there's nothing left for you to do to win that kind of favor or acceptance from God. That's the point he wants to make. And he makes it with this circumcision analogy. Circumcision was a huge issue at the time. It's all through Paul's letters. uh, Because because Jesus came through the people of Israel, through the Jews who who had this practice that marked them off from the other peoples of the world, it was assumed by a lot of people, if they weren't Jewish, when they became Christians, that they had to be circumcised. Because... How could you be part of God's people if you didn't bear this mark that defines God's people? And so they, they were wondering, what should we do? And Paul's telling them, if you were not circumcised when God accepted you, don't be circumcised. He accepts you already. You don't have to go out there and, and, and change that part of your body because in order to win the, uh, the acceptance of God, you've got it already. It says the same thing in the reverse. And this one might be new to you. Maybe you didn't know that there was a reverse circumcision practice at, in the ancient world. 
In this case, probably because in the Gentile world, especially among the Greeks, to be circumcised was, uh, was a sort of social stigma attached to it. And so some people, wanting to improve their social standing, would try to have that re- reversed through a procedure that I won't give you the details of. You don't want to know. It doesn't sound good at all. They would have, try to have it reversed so that, they, so that they could climb the social ladder, right? What are they after? Someone who wants to get circumcised is probably after trying to please God or to fit in with what the people of God expect of him. They want, his, they want their acceptance or God's acceptance. The person who wants to reverse it is trying to fit in better in Greek culture. They want their acceptance. They want to climb the social ladder in the city where they live. Either one is, after, is, is out to please somebody else. And what Paul says is, God's already called you. So if he called you when you were circumcised, you're good. If he called you when you were uncircumcised, you're good. Be content and remain with God where you are. I think the payoff is that God accepts you either way. And all that matters now is responding in obedience. That's verse 19. God doesn't care whether you're circumcised or not circumcised. Just live in obedience to him. A response to the fact that he has already called you and marked you off as his. Now, the reason, the reason this is, a, is so important for us is I think, and I don't have any social scientific research to back this up, but my sense is that, that many of the times when we're discontent or unhappy in our lives, it's because we feel like we have failed to measure up to somebody's standard. Maybe ours, maybe the standard of our families, of our friends, of some social circle that we want to be part of and don't feel like we're part of. Often, if we're discontent, it's because we haven't measured up. It can be because we don't feel like we're well-liked, because our performance is not good enough, because we've let down those that we care about. I don't know if this is where your unhappiness comes from, if you're unhappy this morning. But the question I'd love for you to leave asking is, if, if I own Jesus... If I've attached myself to him and I'm still unhappy, who else am I trying to please? If God has accepted me, who else am I trying to please? The next encouragement, I think, from this passage that that helps us fight for happiness, for freedom from unhappiness and wishing that our lives were different from what they are comes from connecting with God's sovereignty over you. Now, that's the next example Paul gives. This one's in verses 21 to 24. Um, it, but, but it comes up earlier in the chapter. Like I said, this, these central verses, 17 to 24, are really just going into more detail in ideas that are already there before that section and in ideas that come after that section. In this case, it come, the, this idea comes out in verse 7, for example. It talks about the gifts that God gives of one kind and another, that God God and his sovereignty equips people for certain things. comes out in verse 17 with the language of leading the life that the Lord has assigned to you. And comes out in, in verse 24 with the call to remain wherever you are, to remain there with God. Verse 20 takes us from the realm of trying to please other people, or to meet standards that, that aren't what God has put over us, into the realm of into the realm of quality of life, social standing, and all that, it, that goes with it. Because what Paul says here, and this is, this is a radical teaching, what he says here is that if you were a slave, when you were called by God, when God's acceptance reached you, if you were a slave at that time, don't let it bother you. 
That's literally what the, what the phrase means. Don't let it bother you. Now, if anyone had a reason to be discontent or unhappy, even as a Christian, in the ancient world it was slaves. It's a very different institution from the one we've read about in America, but it was, it was still a very brutal and uh, a, a deeply demeaning existence. You had no rights. You were at the mercy of your owner who could beat you, abuse you physically. Uh, you, in some cases, were not in control of the terms on which you would get your freedom. No freedom was possible. It was out of your hands how to get there. And as many as one-third of the population of the city of Corinth at this time, so presumably some of the people reading this letter, were slaves. And another third of the population were freed slaves, people who had earned their freedom. They knew deeply what Paul is talking about here. Maybe they'd even written to him asking about it, and that's why he mentioned slaves. What he says to them is that they shouldn't let it bother them, that they could be abused on a whim, that they have no rights, that they can't have families, that they can't improve their standing. He says, don't sweat it. Now, our first response is that's really easy for you to say, right? That's almost always our first response when somebody tells us not to let something bother us that, that is not true of their lives, right? You just don't get it. And I, that, that makes sense. But Paul turns the tables. He doesn't back down because of that. He turns the tables on them and says, no, it's, it's not me. If, if they're thinking that in their minds, what he, would, what he would want them to hear is, it's not me that doesn't get it. it. It's you. If you're bothered too deeply by this condition that you're in, it's you that don't get what it is to be attached to Jesus. And the way his lordship over our lives changes what's true about us, changes the way we view our circumstances. Now, I want to use the slavery example here. I want to tease this out as a a way of illustrating a choice that all of us make when there's something we run up against in our life that we wish wasn't true, something about our lives that we wish would go away or change. On one, we've got a couple of main options for dealing with it, um, for explaining those things and and, and trying to handle them. On the one hand, we could explain those things in our lives that we don't like, that we wish were different, as our fault, as, as the result of something we did, as a poor deci- the result of a poor decision that we made, or, uh, or some failure to perform or to meet a standard that we had set for ourselves. We weren't good enough to make our lives different from what they are. So we carry around guilt. Maybe the slave who read this letter was thinking that if only they had hadn't borrowed more money than they could pay. They wouldn't be in, in slavery right now. The response is regret or self-loathing. On the other hand, another choice we've got, when, we're, when, we, when we recognize something in our life that we wish was different, we wish would change, another common response to that is to fixate on the powers that are outside of us, that are outside of our control, that have done this to us. Things that have happened just through the course of circumstances or events or things that somebody has done to put us where we are, if we fixate on those things, then it's a fixation on injustice, on powerlessness. It, takes, it, it makes a defining feature of our lives what's happened to us or what's been done to us. And, and I think discontent often comes from wishing things had fallen differently. And the way we respond to that is anger a lot of times. Or, or jealousy, maybe, of people who have had better circumstances in their lives. People who haven't had to deal with what we've had to deal with. 
or restless and frustrating attempts to change reality. And I think there's a place for these responses. I think there's a place for them. Uh, I think that it's, I know that. It's, it's true that God hates injustice. And wherever injustice is done, God sees it. He will not miss it. He will punish it. I think it's true that, there, that we live in a fallen world and that therefore things happen to us that are outside of our control that are worth grieving over. Sorrow and suffering is, is real and a response of, of anger is sometimes the right response. What Paul would caution these slaves against and would caution us against is letting those natural responses become the defining responses to these circumstances. There's another layer to our situation that Paul wants them to focus on even more. He wants it to, to, to occupy their mind and to, to possess their heart so it controls how they think about things. And it's hard to swallow at first, but, but, but if we swallow it, there is sweet rest in this truth. And there's freedom from unhappiness. In the mystery of divine providence that, that the scriptures talk about from beginning to end, in that mystery... There may be a sense in which you are responsible for the things that have gone wrong in your life. There may also be a sense in which others are responsible, injustice or some sort of natural calamity. But there is, behind it all, a greater responsibility. And it rests with the God who made you, who loves you, and who gave his son to redeem you. Because behind it all, whatever factors may have been in your hands or in the hands of others, this is a life that has been assigned to you by God. That's what he says in verse 17. That's what he's getting at with these slaves. Now, we need to be clear here. He's not telling them, in the mystery of of how our actions and God's providence relate to each other, he's not telling them, just, you know, deal with it. If you're a slave, sorry, you're stuck there. He has that little caveat in there saying, hey, if you can get your freedom... Go for it. What he's telling them, though, is that your life as a meaningful follower of Jesus is not dependent on whether or not you're a slave or free. There is an identity that comes in owning Jesus' lordship over you that transcends what's going on in your life right now. And that that is the identity from which you should live this day and every day. That's what he wants the slaves to know. If they can get free, great. If you can't, your life is not on hold because there is a, there is a truer reality to which you now belong. And that is not changed at all by the fact that you are a slave. The slave is no less God's and God is no less his than if he were free. And God is no less worthy of his love or of his devotion, of his servitude, when in slavery than if he were king on earth. That's, that's what Paul's getting at. It's radical. It's hard to swallow. But if you do, there's sweetness in it. Because what it says, what it undermines is our tendency to say, I will serve God if, or I can't serve God unless I have him and what he offers me and this other thing that my life needs for me to be content. It undermines that. And it says, if I have God, I have enough. And here's the last thing. God's future for you. God's future for you. The last big section of this letter goes into all these nitty-gritty details about what to do if you're betrothed in light of the fact that Jesus is coming. And I, I said up front, 
We're not going to go into all of them because they're, they're, they're strange, and I don't know what I think about all of them, and because they, they're all so nuanced that I don't know that we could effectively get into them in the time that we've got. What I want to do is point you to how he teaches his friends to reason about whether or not they should get married in light of the coming of Jesus, because that's the key here. And that's what transcends for you, whether or not you're wondering about getting married or whether you're already married. What he's telling you is that the key to your contentment and happiness in this life is, is whether or not you see your life in light of Jesus coming again. Look at what he says. What he says, turning in verse 25 to the, to the betrothed, those who are engaged to be married but not married yet. What he tells them is that in view of the present distress it's good for a person to remain as he is. Then skipping down, he says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And he launches into all these things that just shouldn't determine how you, how you live and relate in the world. What he's saying is that whether or not you go ahead and get married or, or don't get married, you know, it could go either way. There's no right or wrong here. It depends. But what should be governing, governing how you think about it is this. Look at verse 29 and 30. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's radical. Don't take it too far. We know this is the guy who's already talked in this letter and in other letters about how wonderful marriage is, about how marriage is a giving of ourselves to each other. And it would, you, would be, you would be wrong to take from this statement that you shouldn't care about your wife and her needs. There's plenty of other evidence from Paul that you shouldn't. That's not what he's saying. He's saying something else. But what? Let those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. Paul's saying there's no place for sorrow? Of course not. He sorrows. His letters are full of him openly admitting that he's grieving this or that thing that he's experienced. Let those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Buy things. You've got to keep buying things, but don't hold on to them. Don't hold them with tight, closed fists. Let those who deal with the world live as though they had no dealings with it. What he's saying... What he's saying is not that you shouldn't be married or you shouldn't buy things or you shouldn't engage the world. What he's saying is that in your marriages, in your mourning, in your rejoicing, in your dealings with the world, your marriage, your mourning, your rejoicing in the world are not the ultimate reality through which you see your life. Because this world and its things are quickly passing away. What he wants them to see is that Christ is coming again. He doesn't go into it here. He goes into it later in the letter. What he wants them to see is that there is freedom from the ups and downs of your circumstances in recognizing that you belong to a kingdom that is coming. You belong to a Christ who is coming to fulfill your every need. And that whether or not you are single or married, you belong to Jesus. And that defines who you are. It was radical at the time for him to see. You saw it when we read through this passage. He's saying, don't get married. If you can help it, don't get married. And we, again, don't take him too far. We know he thinks marriage is a great thing. What he's saying is that you can live a full, complete, fulfilled life and not be married. And in fact, there are advantages to singleness. That was unheard of at that time. At that time, being married was the key to your, to your social standing. It was the key to having money and protection. It was your social security. The ability to have children was your social security. They were the ones who were going pr- to uh, protect you and provide for you in your old age. To not be married was to be shamed in that culture. It's radical today, too, because I think many of us attach this sort of fulfillment in life to our romantic involvement with somebody else. We, have, we put marriage on this pedestal that is the key to our fulfillment. 
we, we actually put unrealistic and unsustainable expectations on what marriage will be like. If you're single today, this passage warns you against that. Your life will not be free from trouble because you get married. I remember thinking that. I, I, I have not been single since, like, basically elementary school. We got married really young. But I, did, I still vividly remember thinking that if I could just convince Lindsay to, to love me, if, we could just, if I could just marry her, then everything else in my life from then on would just sort of fall into place. Or I'd be fine no matter what else happened. And there is a truth to that. She is a source of stability that helps me to encounter things that I, wouldn't, I wish I didn't have to encounter and not be thrown over by them because she's a strength in my life. But there's also a sense in which I've just gone from one thing to worry about to the next since we've been married. Marriage has its troubles of its own. What he says to you if you're single is that you, you don't have to put your life on hold until you get married. Your life is marked by and defined by the lordship of Jesus over you and the fact that he is coming for you and the fact that you ultimately were made for him to love him, to receive joy and fulfillment and pleasure from him more than any other thing in this life. What he's saying is that this foreshortened time, I love that phrase in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. It's not the amount of time. It's not chronology. It's not like it's just a couple days. It's, it's another word for time that means season or opportunity or, or era, and it's been foreshortened. It's been brought forward so that we can see it. What we see now with crystal clarity if we believe the promises of God is that we were made for another world and that the joys of this world, including marriage, are only a mere foretaste of what's prepared for us in that world. And by bringing that world up so that it's foreshortened, so that we see it for what it is, we are given a freedom in light of that future from happiness or unhappiness depending on whether we get what we want out of this life. His call is to remain with God wherever you might be to take it as the life he has assigned you and to enjoy it because you enjoy him and he is yours. So don't compare your life to somebody else's. Our lives always seem harder than other people's lives. And it's never true. Singleness or marriage both offer opportunities for for devotion to the Lord, for obedience to him. And resist the urge to see your life. If you're single this morning, and you've heard, you've heard the talk on sex last week, and how wonderful and powerful it is in marriage, and you've read some of the things about marriage when we read this chapter together, and maybe you're thinking, I don't understand how I can have a fulfilled life and not have those things. Paul's words to you are, that's a lie. That's a lie. The life you have now is a life in which you can live for the purpose for which you were made, just to serve and glorify God. If you see your circumstances now in light of the future that he's promised you, that's the key to obedience and joy. Father, it is, it is one thing to see these truths and to even affirm them with our minds. It's another thing to feel them and to live from them from our hearts. And Unless your spirit changes what we love, we have no hope. And so we we give ourselves over to you and ask that you would help us to be so enamored by your promises to us, to be so fulfilled in what you offer us yourself, that we are raised above the hard things of this world. 
we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.